Today's reading from the Word of God comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they even gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through he, though, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. And here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Anchor Bay. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here this morning. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you. Uh, it's nice to see so many of you were, were able to dig out and come and join us in person, but hello if you're on the live stream. We're glad that we are all here in spirit or in person. So like we do every week, we're going to just take a moment to be quiet, to reflect on our week, to reflect on where we are and what we are bringing into the room, and to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us with whatever is happening in our stories right now. So let's take a moment to be quiet before the Lord, and I will open us with a word of prayer after a moment.
God, we thank you for the ways that you have shown your immense, immeasurable grace to us. Whether or not we respond to it with gratitude, you give and you give and you give. And we thank you for that. We thank you for who you are and who you invite us to be as a congregation. And as we go into this new year, I pray that you would compel us to be as generous as you have been with us as we look out onto the rest of the world. That as we think about how we use our time, our treasure, our talents, that we would be earnest in our desire to follow you with them, to be empowered by you to serve your kingdom in ways that you have equipped us. So we love you. We offer this time to you as an act of our worship. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys want to hear a cheesy pastor joke that I never get to tell? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I didn't run this by anyone. I'm just going to tell it. So, okay, there's this little country church like 75 years ago, and they had a snowstorm. And the pastor decided to hold church anyway, and so he like opens the doors, and, and one person shows up, and it's this old farmer. And so the pastor's up in the pulpit, and he looks at the farmer, and he says, do you still want a sermon? And the, the farmer said, well, you know, if, if there was a snowstorm and one sheep came in to get fed, I'd still feed him. And so the pastor said, all right. So he gives this like fire and brimstone sermon. He's, it's just the guy and him. It's like just the two of them in the room. He, he preaches for 45 minutes, this impassioned sermon. And then like he does every week, he goes around to the back of the sanctuary to d get the receiving line and like shake everyone's hand that's there. And it's just this one guy. And so the guy com comes up to him and he shakes his hand and he said, well, you know, if one sheep came in from the snowstorm, I'd feed him, but I wouldn't give him the whole bag. Thanks. Thanks, guys. On the live stream, they laugh, like, so hard. <laughs> it's, a really, it's a really good joke. Um, learned that in seminary in my preaching class. So I have a whole bag for you this morning. You're welcome. Um, this morning's sermon is a little different. It has four acts in it, kind of like a four-act play. And the first three acts are about a few churches in the Bible that have a pretty complicated relationship. And I'm going to give you a lot of history and culture. So for my history and culture geeks, you're going to love this one. But I believe that the history and the culture of these ancient churches in the Bible is relevant to the fourth act in which we will talk about what all this means for us today in our church. So here we go. Act one. The curtain rises on the land of Achaia circa AD 55. A ship bobs in the lee tide of the icy Aegean Sea. The ship is headed for a great city, a port city, the city of Corinth. And if you were with us this fall, you already know this city of Corinth very well. The ship is headed to Corinth to deliver a letter. And it's a strongly worded letter, and some of it is written in code. Because between the lines of this letter, we read about this city's unwritten social codes. And in ancient Corinth, there were unwritten social codes everywhere. There were codes about what you could eat and how you could eat it. Codes about who did business and how you could do it. Codes about your place in society and how you could live it. There were unwritten social codes for everything. And if you broke one of them, well, let's just say there would be unwritten social consequences too. But for the sake of our story this morning, we're just going to focus on one. One social code that everyone understood but nobody talked about. Because in that city, in that day, a certain kind of relationship could happen, could a kind of like under the table relationship could happen between two people of very different social position. The first person in the relationship was called the patron. 
And, and that person would generally be a person of pretty high position. The patron would be wealthy, well-known, a person of high status, and generally of pretty good reputation. A patron could make an offer to a second person, someone of lower position in life, and this person was called the client, the patron and the client. The patron would offer the client something that the client needed. It could be money or food or farmland, or it could be something less tangible, maybe protection or influence or advice. Whatever the client needed, it was to their advantage to accept it from the patron. And the patron? Well, he'd give those gifts freely to the client, generously, no strings attached. Kind of. At least least that's what the patron would tell himself and everyone else. He would tell himself that he was giving to the client out of the goodness of his heart. That it was the honorable thing to do. It was the upright thing to do. It was just what wealthy people do. The patron would never demand anything from the client in return. That would be absurd, rude, very bad form. Nothing was to be expected. Nothing was to be demanded. But it would be nice if the client would be, you know, grateful for the no-strings-attached gift. And really, truly, the patron would never, not in a million years, ask for anything in return from the client. But, you know, if the client failed to show sufficient gratitude, well, that would not not get noticed. Maybe the patron would talk to other patrons about it. Maybe the patron would withhold what had been promised to the client. One philosopher wrote that, that the consequence of not showing sufficient gratitude to your patron, if you are a client, would result in shame and being hated by all good people. Yikes. If you weren't sufficiently grateful, you could risk becoming a social outcast forever. So it was to the client's advantage to show sufficient gratitude to their patron. But how do you show gratitude when you're the one with less in the relationship? How do, you, how do you give someone a gift who already has everything? Well, let me count the ways. You could vote for the patron's political party. You could take on the, the patron's social causes. You could run through the city streets yelling about how awesome the patron is. People actually did that. Even though the client couldn't give anything tangible to the patron in return to show how grateful they were, they could give themselves to the patron instead their loyalty, their devotion, their advocacy. Now, there were a few more unwritten rules governing these kinds of social contracts in Corinth. The first rule of the patron-client relationship, you never talk about the patron-client relationship. The second rule of the patron-client relationship, you never talk about the patron-client relationship. You could talk about each other, of course. You would just refer to each other as friends and leave it at that. Keep all that gift giving and receiving stuff under the table. You communicate about it with a wink and a smile and some wadded up cash. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And and all those gifts and money or food or land that you got and all the gratitude that the client would give in return, you never talk about those things either. either. Those things you simply refer to with one word that describes the entire gift into gratitude arrangement and that one word is grace. Grace. Now today we generally think of grace as a religious word, a Christian word, 
We might define grace as God's unmerited favor towards us. God's unmerited favor towards us. And that is a good definition and it is a true definition. But back then in the days of Corinth, grace was an exclusively secular word. It was a social word. And it described this whole unwritten code between the patron and the client. Grace was when the patron gave something to the client that the client needed, wealth, a home, status, in exchange for something that the patron wanted, reputation, influence, power, admiration. Grace was the attitude of generosity between these two parties. Grace was whatever gifts the patron gave to the client, and grace was the gratitude that the client gave in return. Grace, of course, was never something that you could earn or work for, but if you received a gift of grace as a good client, you were expected to respond with grace, with gratitude, with loyalty, with praise for the patron, because grace was not a one-way street. Gifts require gratitude. Take a look at this painting. We're going to put a painting up called The Virgin Graces, and this is from Greek mythology. They, talk, they would have talked about this in ancient Greece. These three young women, they're always young, they're always beautiful, and they represented this kind of complicated social arrangement of grace. These three were always, always seen as dancing in a circle, passing grace from hand to hand and then back again. Grace always makes it back to the patron. And if you break one rule of this arrangement, if you, if you break one rule one time, you destroy the beauty of the whole dance. It is a cyclical arrangement. I like how the old Greek philosopher Sophocles said it. He described this arrangement like this. He said, grace is always giving birth to grace. Grace is always giving birth to grace. So one day into this system, into the city of Corinth, walks a man named Paul. And again, if you've been with us this fall or if you've been around the church, you know Paul well by now. Technically, ethnically, Paul isn't one of them. But culturally, he is. He knows their world. He knows their systems. He gets all their unwritten social codes and all their unwritten social consequences. But he's there to introduce something brand new to their society, something that they have never heard of before. He introduces them to this man named Jesus, and, and he tells them that this man Jesus died and rose again so that they could be made whole. And slowly, one by one, a group of Corinthians start to believe in Jesus, and they start to follow him. People of every class and gender and socioeconomic situation, a whole group of Corinthians, they come to believe in Jesus and they start to form this church. And Paul, he looks around at them as their numbers grow and their love for Christ deepens and he's proud. He's thankful. Everything's good. Everything's coming up Corinth. And that's Act 2. Act 3. One day, Paul gets some troubling news about another church that he cares about, a church in Jerusalem. And I won't go into all the details this morning about what was happening in Jerusalem, but basically all at once, the church in Jerusalem is experiencing some persecution. They experience a famine, and suddenly their tax rate gets, is soaring as the Roman Empire starts taking over more and more of their region. And the Christians there in, in Jerusalem, they're just not making ends meet. They can't feed their families. They're scattered. They're in hiding. They're scared. And Paul loves them. He loves this church in Jerusalem. And so he hears about what's going on, and he starts writing to the churches all over the ancient world, and he's asking them to give financially to support the Christians living in Jerusalem. I really made a GoFundMe page for it. I was pretty proud of that. The, ch <laughs> the church in Jerusalem, or the church in Corinth, gets one of these letters, and, the, and these baby Christians in Corinth, they're so excited to give. 
to give to the church in Jerusalem. And they're the first of all of the churches back then in the ancient world to give to the church in Jerusalem. And they give joyfully, they give eagerly, cheerfully. Until one day, there's a plot twist. Something happens that breaks this bond between Paul and the church that he founded in Corinth. Now, we don't know exactly what went down that complicated the relationship between the the Corinthian church and their founder, Paul, but we do know a few things. We know that this church had formed, like all churches do, in the middle of a local culture full of social codes and unwritten rules. And as we know, as we all know from our own experiences, social codes are hard to shake, even after you start following Jesus. And and that patron-client relationship thing in that ancient world that everyone knew about but no one talked about, it starts to infiltrate into the fabric of the Corinthian church. It seemed innocent enough at first. The wealthy Christians in in the church start offering their homes for churches to meet in. It's not a big deal. We need a place to worship in. Well, my living room is big enough, so so why don't you just let me host our gatherings? I'll cover everything. It was thoughtful. It was generous. No strings attached. It was grace. So naturally, on the surface, these wealthy Corinthian Christians, they expect nothing in return from the rest of the church in response. They were simply being hospitable honorable to offer up their homes and resources for the good of the church. But I mean, of course, they wouldn't turn down a little gratitude if it was offered. Well, eventually groups of these wealthy Corinthian Christians who have been opening their homes up to the church rent-free, they start expecting a little gratitude at the Lord's table. I mean, (laughs) whose table is everyone sitting at anyway, am I right? I mean, my family and my friends, we should get the best seats in our own dining room and the best food, and all the communion wine. I mean, who provided all this anyway, right? And all the while, these wealthy Christians were leaving the poorer Christians hungry and humiliated, watching from cheap folding chairs around the perimeter of the room. And Paul calls the wealthy Corinthian Christians out. He tells them in no uncertain terms that the gospel is not for sale to the highest bidder. And you can imagine how well that went over. The Corinthian Christians did not like that. They got mad. They got real mad. They stopped taking Paul's advice. They start listening to Paul's opponents. And they stop contributing to Paul's GoFundMe, the collection for Jerusalem. Which brings us to Act 3. Sorry, that was Act 2. This is Act 3. The ship and the strongly worded letter. So we're going to go back to, to where we were in the beginning. We're back at the ship and the strongly worded letter. And Paul... He touches on a variety of hot topics in his letter. He reminds them of the gospel. He reminds them again of their sainthood in Christ. And then he brings up the collection for the church in Jerusalem. And he doesn't demand that they give to it. He doesn't remind them of their commitment to give, at least not at first. Instead, he starts with a story. It's it's like a, a play within a play, the story that he tells them. And he tells them about yet another church, a church that's not that far from them in a place called Macedonia. And the Christians in Macedonia were not like the Corinthian Christians. This wasn't a church made up of people of every socioeconomic situation or every socioeconomic class. The Christians in Macedonia were just poor across the board. This was a poor church. They were so poor, actually, that no one had even asked them to contribute to the church in Jerusalem. Everyone knew they wouldn't have been able to afford to give. And no one would have wanted to put them through the embarrassment of having to say that, no, they couldn't help. And so the Macedonians just 
didn't get asked. It will save everyone the awkwardness of a money conversation, you know? So what do the Macedonians do? They raise money for Jerusalem on their own. They didn't have to. They could have stayed under the radar if they wanted that, but they didn't want that. They wanted to raise money, and raise money they did. In fact, they raised so much money that they raised more money than anyone thought that they could afford, even Paul, even they themselves. Paul describes it this way. He says, In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. These Macedonians did not let their circumstances get in the way of their generosity. Why? What made these poor Macedonians give? We find the answer in one very specific, very intentional code word that Paul uses in his letter. And this word is dripping with cultural significance. It's dripping with social meaning. Paul uses this word 18 times just in the book of 2 Corinthians, and five of them we find just in this one passage. It's clear that this word is the glue of the whole idea. Why did the Macedonians give? One word. Grace. Grace says this, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. They urgently pleaded with us for the grace of sharing in this service. We urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a, made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Grace, grace, grace. And here's the crux of the argument. Verse 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Why were the Macedonians extending grace to others? Why were they being so unbelievably well beyond their means generous? Because they believed that they had received unbelievable generosity from Jesus, who though he was rich, for their sakes became poor, so that by his poverty, the Macedonians could become rich. Because to them, Jesus was the patron, and they were the client. And an act of grace from a generous patron always requires a response of gratitude. Grace always gives birth to more grace. For the Macedonians, grace wasn't a one-way street. It wasn't just about what you got, but about what you gave. The Macedonians knew what so many in the Corinthian church hadn't grasped yet, that our God loves to give. Right in the beginning, God gave the garden. And God gave God's only son so that through Christ's death and resurrection, God might give eternal life and life to the full. Our God loves to give. And here's the thing. What sets God's grace apart from all the other graces and what sets God apart from all the other patrons is that God doesn't just give to those who do respond or those who can respond or those who God knows will respond with gratitude. God also gives to those who don't. God gives to those who walk away and try to store up treasures on their own over and over again. God gives to those who don't give back. And when they refuse to respond with more gratitude, when they break up the dance of grace, God takes all those unwritten social consequences, all the sin and shame of all the clients, and God takes it all the way to the cross. The thing that you find again and again with God's grace is that God is the one who is keeping the dance going. Grace in God's kingdom is not about fulfilling some kind of indebtedness or unwritten social contract. 
It's about people being so transformed by Christ, so genuinely changed by him that they become people who live and look like the patron and who can't wait to join in the dance. True grace always gives birth to grace. And that's act three. That's all we get from act three. We don't know how the story turns out. We don't know if the Corinthians ended up giving to the collection again after they read Paul's letter. We don't know if Paul ever saw them again. That's all we get in this story, this invitation to give. Which brings us to Act 4, Anchor Bay Church, 2024 AD. How is grace giving birth to grace in our church these days? How is the generosity that we have received from God spilling out all over the world around us? When we think about our lives, when we think about this last year, where have we seen grace giving birth to grace? Well, this morning, you guessed it, we are jumping back into our series, Elephants in the Church, Hot Topics in the Corinthian Letters. We're spending this winter talking about some more uh, hot topics, then we're going to take a break, another break for Lent like we did for Advent, and then we'll uh, head back into it in the spring. And we're going to spend the last part of our sermon this morning talking about giving and generosity. We've skipped ahead a little bit in the Corinthian letters. We thought this was a good message for the beginning of the year. Uh, We are going to go back and spend a little bit more time in 1 Corinthians before we're done. And we're also going to take a look at a few more passages on money and generosity from the Corinthian letters this spring. Because these are massive topics in the Bible. Jesus talks about money and giving more than almost anything else, more than almost any topic in the Bible. And there are lots of different angles and ways that we need to talk about it. So we're going to actually have a couple sermons on money and generosity this year. And I'll be honest, we, we have covered some difficult topics so far in this series. We've talked about church division and sin and judgment and sex and pornography. And this topic, generosity, it isn't always easy for pastors to talk about either. Some pastors don't like to preach about it because it it feels awkward to talk about it. It feels like we're asking for something. People don't make eye contact with us when we're preaching about generosity. One time I was preaching about giving and I tried to hype it up and make it like a big cool event like Shark Week. And so I made a logo for it with a bunch of dollar bills swarming in the sea like sharks. And I did all this promo stuff and I thought everyone would think it was really cool. And no one came to church that week. So now I have to ambush you. (laughs) It makes sense, right? Lots of churches have appealed for money in a way that can feel manipulative or guilt-tripping. We all know about churches. We read about them in the news all the time. Churches that have abused money or used their finances for things that aren't important to the parishioners. And I get that. Believe it or not, I have been part of churches too. In fact, I've been an active part of, of six churches before I was a pastor at this one. And so I have heard a variety of sermons about giving. And the assumption has been, in lots of those sermons, the assumption has been that if you don't give to the church, or if you don't give a lot, then you're sinful, or you're greedy, or you're anxious, or you're not trusting in God enough. And while those factors are certainly true to some degree when it comes to giving for lots of us, I also know that the situation financially for so many of us is a lot more nuanced than that, and the trends that we see in giving these days are a lot more complicated than that. Financial expectations have changed across the board in our country. Older generations are needing to work later in life to save up for retirement or make sure that they have money in their older ages, or or they're trying to put kids through college. Younger generations aren't able to expect the same transfer of wealth that our parents once did. Most of us are making 20% less than older generations or our parents' generations did at the same age. Housing prices are skyrocketing. Student debt is at an all-time high. So preaching about generosity 
as if the same factors and financial expectations that lots of us have enjoyed in our country are still true across the board, it's just not as easy as that these days. Times have changed, and different generations are facing new and nuanced challenges, and so I wanna be mindful of that as we go into these conversations. I'm affected by those things too. You know, most of the churches that I was a part of uh, before this one taught that, that everyone should give a certain percentage or a certain amount of their income to the church, no matter what you made and in every single season of life. And I've heard sermons like this preached well on some occasion, but I've also heard sermons like this preached very, very poorly. I heard one pastor say anecdotally that he was having a conversation with his father-in-law, and he's, he's telling this story like as an invitation for us to give and to consider giving. And he was talking with his, his father-in-law about whether you should tithe on the gross or the net of your income. And uh, so they're getting like really specific. And his father-in-law said, well, that depends. Do you want to be blessed on the gross or the net of your income? As if the amount of blessing that we receive from God has anything to do with how much we give to the church. Don't even get me started on that kind of health and wealth gospel. Now, I don't want to totally throw the baby out with the bathwater either on giving guidelines. And we're going to talk a little more practically about giving guidelines later in this series, in the spring. And in lots of ways, I think that guidelines can be really helpful. But when we present them as rules to obey... We miss the opportunity to invite people to have an honest conversation with God and with the church about what worship and generosity looks like for them in this particular season of life and faith. And the church misses out on an incredible opportunity for grace and generosity, incredible expressions of generosity. Now, most of our marriage, Aaron and I have tried to give away 10% of our income but there have been seasons when giving away a full 10% of our income just hasn't been possible for us. Seasons of financial hardship or difficulty when we're having trouble paying some of our bills. And it's been a huge blessing to us in those seasons for the church to come alongside us and say, here, we'll cover a bill for you. Or, or we'll fill in some of those gaps financially for you while you get on your feet. It's, it's been difficult in those seasons to accept that we sometimes need help from the church, but it's also been an act of worship and an exercise in trust in God for us to receive and to let the church support us in those seasons. For us, sometimes receiving from the church has been an act of worship. It's been grace giving birth to grace. And Aaron and I have also been through seasons of abundance where we could give more than 10%. But having a rule that tells us we only have to give 10% has let us off the hook when an act of worship might actually be having an honest conversation with God and with the church about what abundance and generosity and giving sacrificially looks, for us, looks like for us in seasons of more and seasons of plenty. Generosity and grace don't look the same for every person or every family in every season. So this morning isn't about rules and it isn't about guilt. It's about considering how grace is giving birth to grace in your life, in our community, in this season, and in our relationship with Christ right now. Now, I know us. Some of us are like the Macedonian Christians. Some of us are so taken with the gospel. We are so grateful for what God has done for us, so joyful at that gift of life that we want to share it with the world. And so we give, and we give a lot. Sometimes I am astounded 
at the ways that I see people giving generously in this church of their time, their energy, and their resources. Whoa, I didn't know that was going to be emotional for me, but I, I get to see these stories up close. During the pandemic, when, uh, when lots of us received, received st- stimulus checks, one of our pastors got a phone call from someone in the church saying, hey, I'm actually, I'm doing okay financially. I don't need my stimulus check, and I'm wondering if someone else in the church could use it. And so we got this idea to invite our congregation, if they were in that situation, to think generously and to give either all or some of their stimulus check to support people who maybe needed a little bit more than that. And within a few weeks, our church had collected $20,000 to give away. We were able to provide groceries, bus passes, cover rent, mortgages, utility bills, pay for mental health support for people within our church and in the broader community. And then it's been so beautiful, you guys. Faithfully, every month, people have given to replenish that fund so that we could continue giving money away. Anytime a request comes in, we are able to meet it through the gifts of those, that benevolence fund. It's grace giving birth to grace. And some of you, as an act of worship and trust, you have received that financial resource from the church, those gifts during difficult financial seasons. That is also an act of worship. That is grace giving birth to grace. Years ago, there was a college student who joined our church as a partner, and the next week after he came to the partnership class, he started giving once a week, $10.13. Every week, $10.13. It was his his tithe from his uh, job on campus as a student. And $10.13 might not sound like a lot of money to give, but it made it possible for our pastors to meet with a newcomer at church once a week and to take them out and cover their coffee, to hear their stories and help them connect. He was compl- this college student was completely underwriting one of those hospitality meetings every week with $10.13. So many people have come to join our church through those coffees. Some of you have been the beneficiary of those coffees. Now, I I am in touch with pastors all over the North Shore and all over the country, and I know that lots of churches have struggled the last few years. Churches have seen a huge dip in giving, and some churches have had to shut down programs. They've had to lay off employees. Some of them have even had to close their doors altogether. And I am just so grateful that that has not been true for our church. Like any church, our our church has uh, ebbs and flows in giving, but so many of you have joined into the steady plotting regular giving that supports the everyday ministry of our church, some of the effects of which we will never actually get to see. We uh, house a nonprofit that helps immigrants through the the immigration process. Our giving helps maintain a space so that we can uh, host a food locker that makes food available to those in need 24-7 in our parking lot. To provide a free healthcare clinic a few times a year to to provide healthcare for the underinsured and the uninsured to create programs that teach our kids and teens about Jesus and gatherings to equip our members to be transformed by Christ and then to serve in the broader community. We have, we have people in this church who genuinely don't have extra finances to give in this certain season, but they give in other ways. They give their energy and their time and their, their ideas. They serve on ministry teams. They advocate for people on the underside of power. They share their expertise in a certain area. I could tell you story after story after story of the generosity of the people in this church who give of their time and their talent and their treasure. Grace giving birth to grace. So many of us are like the Macedonian Christians But some of us, when we're honest in this season, we're a lot more like the Corinthian Christians. I mean, sure, we give. We totally give from time to time or when we have extra. But when it comes to regular giving, to joyful giving, to eager giving, 
Well, we can't really say that that's us right now. Now, there are lots of reasons for this. Honestly, maybe we've never just thought of it before, giving our money away. Maybe it never really occurred to us. Or perhaps we've never taken the time to come up with a budget or a plan for generosity, and maybe we're not even really sure where to begin. Or maybe we want to give, we definitely want to give, but something has convinced us that we can't give. So if that's you, I want to invite you, just like Paul did with the Corinthian church, to consider what grace, giving birth to grace, looks like for you in this season. What does it look like for grace that you have received from God to pour out into grace for others? What are you grateful for that you have experienced in the kingdom of God or in this church that you want to make sure is available for others to on a continued basis? How can that inner gratitude transform into outward grace? Because it could change the world and it could change your life. Well, I'll close with a story about how we've seen this at our church through some unexpected givers. If you don't know, we are part of a denomination called the Covenant, and there are a few dozen Covenant churches all over the greater Boston area. And whenever we can, we like to share resources and ideas and kind of generally support each other as churches. And one year, we partnered up with a few other Covenant churches in greater Boston to put on a summer vacation Bible school for the kids in all of our communities so that the kids in our churches could learn about Jesus. And the plan was that we would share resources and staff, but every church would cover their own costs financially. And that plan would have worked great, except we started to learn as we planned that the churches that we were working with came from higher income neighborhoods than we did. And when we were presented with the budget for what was being planned, it was way more than our church could afford. So we weren't sure what we were going to do. We were too far into the planning, but our budget had been set for the year. So we, we prayed, we brainstormed, we, we got a few donations, but it wasn't enough. And then we got a phone call with some news. The children at one of the other churches, High Rock Arlington, wanted to raise a collection for our church. During their own vacation Bible school, the kids from High Rock Arlington raised hundreds of dollars to help cover the cost of our vacation Bible school so that our kids on the North Shore could learn about Jesus. It was God's grace spilling out of their church all over ours. Now, the story could have stopped there. We could have received this gift of grace from High Rock Arlington to cover the cost and let it end there. But the kids at our church, like the Macedonian church, wouldn't be left out of the offering. Over the course of our own vacation Bible school, a few weeks later, our kids did what had been done for them, and they raised money. They brought money to help support the children's ministry of another covenant church in Tokyo, Japan. Every day that week, our church's little kids would bring in a few pennies or a few dollars. Sometimes they brought in Cheerios. And by the end of the week, we had raised $103 to send to the children's ministry at Tokyo Life Church in Japan. Grace is always giving birth to grace. You can have very little money and yet be very rich. And you can have tons of cash and be very poor. Your spirit can be so bursting and wide and generous that you are in a profound way phenomenally rich all because of the dance of grace that God has invited us into. So what about you? How is grace showing up in your life these days? Where is grace giving birth to grace? Maybe if Anchor Bay is your home church, it's time to start giving financially. 
not here and there or when you have extra or when you remember, but on a regular basis to support the everyday ministry of our church. And I'm going to send out an email today with ways that you can do that regularly. Maybe this is the year to start supporting God's work in our community, in our city, in our country, and in our world, or to start giving more generously in a season of abundance to fill in the gaps for those who are struggling. Or you can start with $10.13. It actually makes a difference. So maybe that's you. Or maybe you're already giving that way, but, but you haven't yet invested your time or your talent into our mission, the gifts that God has entrusted you with in your life. Maybe you haven't jumped into the community to serve, to be part of the work that God is doing in this community. And if that's you, maybe this is the year, maybe this is the year to take an honest look at your schedule or your other commitments, and maybe even rearrange some things so that God's grace spills through your time onto the rest of the world. If you don't know where to start, we need people to help make coffee on Sunday mornings, to serve on the hospitality team, and to serve as helpers in Kids Crew. Those are community contributions that we need everyone all hands on deck for. Take a step. Even if it feels like a small thing to you, or if it feels like a big one, just see what it feels like to experience the dance of grace, giving birth to more grace, and then try another step. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ways that you have made us rich. Whatever that looks like for us, whether that comes out in our finances, in our time, in our energy, in our talents, you have entrusted us with gifts to offer your kingdom. We pray that you would convict us that in the, the places where we are convinced that we can't share, that you would help us to see ways that we can, that you would open those doors for us. In the seasons where it's your calling to us to receive, we pray that you would give us the joy in receiving and being provided for by the church, and that this would be a church where we are meeting one another's needs in profound ways that we can tell the stories of your goodness and your faithfulness and your grace for generations. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, in a moment we are going to receive communion. And so if you have a kid down in Kids Crew who you would like to bring up to participate in communion, we'd invite you to take this next song to do that. And the rest of us, I'd invite you to stand as you're able, and we will jump back into sung worship.